Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. This is Romans 8, verse 14. Verse 14. Paul says this to the church in Rome. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Over the past two weeks, we have been in a discipleship series looking at what is discipleship. And what I've been trying to do is attempt to lay groundwork for the way of a disciple or what, what is the heart of becoming like Jesus in all aspects of our lives. And so we've come to a bit of a definition that discipleship is moving out of fear and into love. And it's in this passage right before us. It's like, you, 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 this spirit that you received didn't make you a slave so that you live in fear, but instead you got adopted into a loving father-child relationship. So we see it here as well. But this last week, we also talked about how you're not a civilian. If you are a Christian, you are not a civilian. In other words, you're going to say no to things that other people say yes to. You're going you're gonna to say no to things that other people, this is the, the, just the way that we live. And as a Christian, not a civilian, you will make sacrifices for God. And the whole point of it, why, why do any of this? It's so that we can rule with Christ. That's the whole point. The vision statement from the very beginning of the scriptures is that humans were designed to rule. Now, what's about to happen is I want, has anybody seen the movie Inception? I'm not, I'm not saying it's a good movie. You should see it. I don't even remember what's in it, so I can't say that. But has anybody seen the movie Inception? A few of you? Okay. You are about to enter into a sermon series type of Inception, Because what's going to happen is we're in this discipleship series, but now we're doing a series within a series. And this is the series that we're doing now. It's called How to Change. How to Change. I want to take the next three weeks to answer this single question. How do you change? How does somebody practically become more like Christ? Maybe you were in the room and you've been a Christian for a long time, and uh, you have found yourself in a plateau. You're in a dry season. And it seems like every time somebody asks you, hey, how are you really doing? You're like, yeah, I'm just still in that dry season. How do you change? How do you actually grow to become more like Christ? You know, a mentor of mine once told me, he's a church planter, planted many churches, and he said this, every church needs a working theory on how people change. Every church needs a theory. How do people actually change? And we have one. So for the next three weeks, we're going to look at the engine for change in this series within a series. And here's where I want to start. Where I want to start this morning is here. I want to start with your image of God 
and everything else. Your image of God and everything else. Last week I mentioned this, that every human has three uh, images in which they see themselves in. And those three images is your mental image. There's your mental image. How do you see yourself? What kind of person are you? What kind of standards do you have? What makes you a good person? Or why, why do you feel like you might be a bad person? You have this mental image. You have all of your lack and all of your successes kind of summed up mentally. And then you have your projected image. And what is your projected image? It's, you don't want anybody to see that mental image. You want people to see a projected image. And so you spend all kinds of time and all kinds of energy and money to curate an image that everybody else sees, the way that you dress, the way you behave, the kind of job that you have, or the, the kind of career that you're pursuing, or the major, or whatever. But then there's a third image, and it's your real image. And you likely don't know what your real image is. It's the way that you're really showing up. It's the way that you really are. But I want to say this. Before any of those images in your life or in your mind, there is another image that impacts all of them, and that is your image of God. What do you think about when you think about God? It's the most important thing. <laughs> Who is God? Is there a God? What is God like? Your perception of God will determine how you then see yourself, what you project to others, and how you actually show up. And it will, dare I say, determine the very tone of your entire existence. The mood of your life will be impacted by the image of God that you have subconsciously. So if you think, when you think about God, if you think, oh, he's uninterested or he's practically removed, you're maybe an agnostic, he's kind of practically removed from the ongoings of our world, or you think he's emotionally unavailable, he's not interested in the pain of your life, that will affect everything from what you pray, what you ask him for, because you might think, if he's uninterested, why even pray it at all? It'll impact how you see your career and what your mission on this earth is. It will impact the way that you parent and what you give away to your children or how you love a significant other. You know, this is ancient too, guys. The problem for Adam and Eve was that they saw God incorrectly and look what it led to. Because they didn't correctly see God, they had an image of God in their mind, even in Eden. They had an image of God of who he was, and that image was fragile enough to be questioned and cause them to go off the rails. So here's what I want to say this morning. The very first step in changing, how do you change? You have to change your image of God. You have to see God correctly. And I want to ask you this this morning. What was the most basic image of God that Jesus had. What was Jesus' primary image of God? When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he's not just giving them, here's how you pray. He's more, even more importantly, giving them, this is how I see God. And he begins, our Father, our Father. So this morning, the series within a series beginning right now, why you need a father and what a father does. How do you change? You need a father. Why you need a father and what a father does. Now, let's start here. Why, why, why a father? Why a father? Now, aside from all of the statistics, which I'm sure many of you guys are probably familiar with, about the impact of fatherlessness on uh, our culture today, and perhaps maybe a lot of us in this room, we have this logical uh, need of God being what an earthly father wasn't for us or isn't for us. And so we can look and we can go, man, our dad, my dad wasn't this or he wasn't that. And so, yeah, I need, a, I need a father. I need a perfect heavenly father. 
Now, aside from all of that, I just want to ask you specifically, I want to kind of narrow it down a little bit, and I want to ask, what does discipleship look like when God isn't your father? What does discipleship actually look like? What does it practically feel like when God is not your father? Now, maybe some of you are like me. You know, when I became a Christian, um, I, while I was experiencing this incredible felt presence of God, it was, it was tangible in my life, I was comfortable with calling him God, but not dad. And definitely not daddy. <laughs> and definitely not Abba. Some of you are like, ooh, save that guy up there. Uh, he has, I, I promise you. Um, I, I was comfortable with the awe, the reverence, the submission that comes from he is God and I am, am not. But I couldn't get to dad. I just couldn't get there. And here's the problem. If this is you, here's the problem. If this is the case, then you will likely begin with passion for God. You're, and maybe remember this. You will likely have fire running through your veins for God. But then all of a sudden, what life, life happens, and what life does is it throws pain and difficulty your way, and you will then, if God is not your dad, you will end up doing spiritual formation apart from him and for him. Did you get that? <laughs> like, if God is not your dad, then you will begin to do your spiritual formation apart from him, and you will do it for him. Why? <laughs> Because you, in your mind, the way that your conception of God is you don't have a dad who is taking ownership and responsibility for you, who wants to sit and talk with you about your fears. But instead, in your subconscious imagination, God is a man with a clipboard, and he is grading your life. And you owe him for the cross. And so instead of actually, instead of, discipleship isn't this like, you know, God's taking my fear away and replacing it with love. Instead of that, discipleship is, I owe him for the cross. I owe him for the cross, and so I better get to work. And discipleship then takes on these characteristics. See if you can find yourself in any of these, and the reason why I know these is because this is me. Discipleship then becomes the pursuit of sin management. So your whole life is like, I'm trying not to sin. And when you sin, you feel badly. And this is on there as well. Maybe you define your closeness to God based upon feelings. And so you feel badly. You feel like, oh, I've really let God down. And, you know, he went to the cross for me and all of that. And what would my, my, my wife think? Or what would my friends think? Or what would my pastor think? And, and so all of your discipleship has nothing to do with ruling and reigning. It just has to do with trying not to sin. Because you don't know you have a dad. Secondly, you show fidelity to God by holding certain theological beliefs. So rather than your faithfulness to God being shown like, man, Chris, what a graphic and, and beautiful image offering was. Rather than it being like, I'm going to plunge the knife and not look, oh, you're going to give it back, right? That's real faith. That's what, that, that's what gets somebody in the hall of faith within Hebrews. Rather than that level of faith that has evidence to it, you just assent to Christian ideals and beliefs. That's how you show your fidelity. Lastly, change in your life comes from fear of punishment instead, the or is not supposed to be there, uh, fear of punishment instead of love. So rather than you being like, wow, look at how loved I am, his kindness is leading me to repentance, rather than that, you're constantly concerned, am I going to make it into heaven? Well, does God actually love me? You have a faulty image of God in your mind. He's not a father. And so your discipleship looks like spiritual formation apart from him not with him. So much of spiritual formation today is built like this. Do you see how cold this is? 
Do you see how, like, distant that is? Some of you, I just described your life. Do you want that anymore? I, I don't want that for you. Look back down. Paul knows that you want more than this. Verse 15, he says this. The spirit you received, the Holy Spirit you received, does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. So here, here's the first thing. If you are living in fear as a Christian, and you are afraid of God, you don't have the fear of the Lord, which let me just define this for you real fast. You cannot be intimate with somebody that you're afraid of. That's impossible. So when God says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of basically all of life, all wisdom, all, all success in life, all of that, there's so much that the fear of the Lord does. What he's saying is this. He's saying the fear of the Lord is I'm afraid, not of you, God. I'm afraid of not being with you. I'm afraid of making decisions that would, that would keep me far from you. That's the fear of the Lord. It's very different. It's not being scared of God. It's being so in awe of God. So your whole world begins to ro- revolve around his, his, uh, his gravitational mass, to, so to speak, so that you wouldn't think of anything else. It's solely you. I'm not going to be afraid of anything else. I'm not going to worship anything else. I'm not going to you know, pursue anything else. It's just you. So he says, you know, you, you, the spirit that you received, it didn't make you a slave so that you live in fear. That's, that's life pre-Christ, living in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. What's the opposite of fear? Well, right here, it's adoption to sonship. You got a family. You got a dad. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So when you came into Christ, you were baptized and you received the Holy Spirit. And the ache that you have likely had your whole life to be fathered, no matter how good of a dad you had, that ache to be fathered, to be known at that intimate level, is actually confirmed by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says, your most intimate cry, your most vulnerable state, it's not silly, it's not sentimental or dramatic, it's true. It's possible. You can be fathered. There's a father. There's a family that you can belong to. So, so here, I want to say this, especially in a town like ours. Don't live your Christian life trying to be a serious Christian and a serious person. Don't even live your life with the primary pursuit of, I'm going to be a thoughtful Christian. I'm not like those, you know, wild evangelicals over there. I'll be a thoughtful Christian. And, and maybe even in this church, let me say this. Do not let the primary pursuit of your Christian life be, I want to be a powerful person. As though you have graduated from the sentimental hope of your early Christian years of being fathered. You never graduate from being fathered. You never graduate from being fathered. Be a child. And this is, this is that whole thing, like what began by the Spirit? What did the Spirit begin in you? It began that cry. You actually have a dad. What began by the Spirit, God intends to continue by the Spirit so that all of your life is, I have a dad. I need a dad, and I have one. And so here's the message this morning. The attention of a father in two specific ways is the beginning of change that lasts. Write that down if you're taking notes. If you're not taking notes, I mean it. Write it down. The attention of a dad in two specific ways is the beginning of change that lasts. Firstly, a dad who partners. A dad who partners. This is the beginning of change, that you would get a dad who partners. I want you to imagine just for a moment, if you have to close your eyes, go ahead and do that. I want you to imagine for a moment 
a man who's reaching his, close to his 60s. He has uh, built a small business from the ground up from the time he was in his 20s, and it's done quite well. He's been successful. And not all of his kids, but one of his kids works with him. His other kids have gone off to pursue other uh, business pursuits and other careers. But he has one child that's working with him. Let me ask you this. What is one of the primary desires of his heart? It's to hand his business to his child. Every dad who has something to give away wants to give it away to their kids because they want their kids to stand on their shoulders. They want to partner in the work. And I am here to say that God is no different. Now, how many of you guys remember the story of Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah? What a left turn. Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you guys remember that? <laughs> You're like, where is this going? The sexuality series, I barely made it through last year. Let's not go there. Okay. Maybe you'll remember in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham, he has these three mysterious visitors come visit his house. Uh, you know, Christians, looking back into the scriptures, think this could be somewhat of a, a Trinitarian sort of situation. These three visitors come visit his house, and they have a meeting at his house. But Abraham is not invited to the meeting. All Abraham does is he prepares a very nice meal for their meeting, and he brings them the meal. Remember, Abraham, he's showing hospitality. In fact, actually, Abraham is being contrasted with the inhospitality of Sodom and Gomorrah in the next chapter. But Abraham shows this incredible hospitality to these three strangers. And he's righteous. Abraham's righteous. He trusts God, and his actions show this. Now, at this meeting, we know that they discuss one thing. We know that they discuss Sarah's ability to have a baby. If you know, it's an awesome story. <laughs> they say, Sarah overhears their conversation in this meeting, and she goes, I'm going to have a baby, and I'm 100 years old. Like, like I'm going to have a baby, and she laughs. And, she, and God comes to her and says, you laughed. And she goes, no, I didn't. And he goes, you did laugh. It's pretty funny. <laughs> but also, it seems that they have another topic of discussion in this meeting, and that is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, here's what happens next, and this is just wild. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? So you got to imagine this. God has a meeting without Abraham with these, it seems maybe Trinitarian. He has this very important meeting where he is deciding what to do with Sarah, and he's deciding what to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. And then after the meeting that Abraham wasn't included in, he's like, you know who I should check in with before we do this? I'm going to check in with Abraham and just see what he thinks. So in the following verse, he tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for its wickedness. And Abraham, rather than being like, you are God and I am not, and what, what do I have anything to do with this? You do you. you. You do your God stuff. Abraham's like, hey, I have an idea. What if you don't destroy the city if you can find 50 righteous people? And rather than God being like, nah, I'm just going to destroy the city. He's like, that's a great idea. I can't believe nobody mentioned that in our meeting. I'm so glad I asked Abraham. 
And so Abraham, feeling a little bit, you know, he's got some mojo, he's like, how about if you only found 45 people? And God's like, that's a great idea. And he goes, well, how about 40 people? And he gets all the way down to 10 people. And God's like, that's a great idea. If there are 10 righteous people, then don't worry about it. I won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you know the rest of the story likely, and there's not even 10 righteous people to be found in Sodom and Gomorrah, but here's what I'm getting at. God is not messing with Abraham. God is allowing himself to be influenced by Abraham. Hang on. (laughs) Some of you are like, what? Let me ask you this. Why would God create people if he wasn't interested in what they would do with his world? If he just knew, oh, they're going to just do this and do that, and I, and I should map their life out, why make people at all? We would be simply cogs in a machine. But here's the point. God has made free will actors because he is interested in freely chosen trust relationship. Humans making that free choice, I'm going to trust you. And when you do that, do you see what's happening? You get partnership. The full gospel is this, guys. Humans gave away their authority and gave away that wonderful privilege of partnering with God in the garden. And Jesus came to get that authority back so that we have a partnership with God. I once heard this story. This is a pretty wild story. It might push some buttons. I'm going to push a lot of different buttons today, just a heads up. And I'm going to take a drink of water before I do it. I heard a story one time about this pastor. He had a, a wonderful church gathering. And in the church gathering, they had people come up for prayer. And he was praying over people. And he was prophesying over people. He was saying, I just believe that God's going to do this in your life. And, and he's like, he, he had this one moment with this woman. He's like, you're going to be like the queen of the universe. And, and God sees you as his princess. You know, all this wonderful language. And he got in his car on the way home. And he was just quiet. And he felt God say to him, he said, that was a pretty awesome church gathering. And he was like, yeah, it was. I was on fire. And God said to him, that was some amazing stuff that you said to her. And he was like, whoa. I, said, I thought that was the Holy Spirit moving me. He God said, no, I didn't say any of that to, about her. And he was like, whoa. I'm so sorry, Lord. And God said to him, don't be sorry. I've called you my friend. What kind of friend would I be if I only did what I wanted to do and didn't do what you wanted to do sometimes? Do you have that kind of relationship with God? (laughs) Can you? Abraham did. Do you see how powerful that is? That you have a father who wants to partner, who wants to find out what you're interested in, who wants to give you kingdom dreams, and he's like, run with it, and let's see what happens. Now, what does any of this have to do with change? What does the the father partnership have to do with change? Well, before Christ, you likely walked around telling yourself how lame and unimportant you were, and how you would never amount to much, and you would never do anything important in your life, because all your life you had teachers and coaches and parents and friends and enemies who said that, and you believed them. But then you became a Christian. All of a sudden, there was this other voice in your life who was filling you with partnership-level purpose. But then at some point, for many of us, your old beliefs about who you are started to creep back in. And you began to accept them. And you began to sanctify them by believing that these old beliefs about yourself were actually humility. Humility. 
when in fact, you were, by believing these old things, you were personally disqualifying yourself from the partnership that God had paid for in blood. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is that some of you this morning, if this is a difficult word to hear that God wants to partner with you, you need to repent. You need to change your mind and you need to kick the lies and believe what he says that he has invited you into that Abraham level partnership and he's interested in having an inf- You know what it says in Psalm 25? Let me just say this. It says God tells secrets to those who fear him. You want that kind of relationship? You are destined for it. And so stop calling uh, your, the lies that you've been believing humility. It's not humble to disagree with God. It's not humble to have him pay the the highest price with his blood on the cross and for you to live less than partners with him. You have a father partner. And that is a powerful motivator for change. You aren't changing to earn his affection. You're not changing to earn partnership. You already have it. And so all of your change is then from the fear of the Lord. I am terrified of being in any position where I'm not in partnership with you. So I'll make any sacrifice that you point out in my life so that I can be close to you, so that I can partner with you. Second reality of being father. That was the first one. We have a father partner. Second reality, we have a father gardener. And for some of you, you know, this father uh, partner stuff, that makes sense. It's like, amen, yes, brother. I, I love that stuff. And the risk for you is that you stop seeing God as a father who disciplines you as well. So the second reality of being fathered is that you have a father gardener. Okay, John 15 says this. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples in a metaphor. He says this, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. You have a father gardener. He cuts off. Everybody say cuts off. Every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Speaking to his disciples here, he says, you are already clean. That word clean means cut. You have already been cut because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. That's that partnership stuff. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So Jesus is using this metaphor. In it, your life is like a branch on a grapevine. For many Christians, this is super familiar language, but it's so profound and deep. Your life is like a branch on a grapevine. You bear fruit, or in this metaphor, you see heavenly stuff happen in your life. Salvation, healing, humility, repentance, all because you are connected to the vine. You're not connected to the vine, you won't bear fruit. You are connected to the vine, you will bear fruit, okay? But there's another reason why you bear fruit. It isn't just connectivity alone. There is another reason. So you can take all of the nutrients that you're getting from Christ. You can take all the love of God, and you can use it to produce growth that isn't fruit. <laughs> Let that sink in. There's another reason why you bear fruit, and it's because you get pruned. You get cut. See, God is a father gardener, and he walks through your life, And he's looking for things with eternal value. And he cuts away whatever doesn't produce things with eternal value. So he's looking for sinful pursuits. He's looking for idolatry. He's looking for places of fear. And then he cuts you right there. So that, why? Why is he cutting you? So you'll be even more fruitful. And the metaphor is so good because this is actually, in reality, this is true. That grapevines... Guys, think about this. I pray that God gives you insight into this. 
Grapevines, when they are uncut, they have a tendency to use all their energy to extend as far as they can and get as big of leaves as they can, all the while making less and less actual fruit. Unpruned Christians, we get better and better at looking bigger and using all of our energy to appear like we're a healthy plant, all the while producing less and less actual kingdom fruit. It's that fake image stuff again. Look at our leaves. Look at how big our leaves are. Look at how, look at how far our reach is. But where's the fruit? Where is the fruit? So here's what I'm saying. You need a, a father partner. You really do. You need a father partner, but you also need a dad who cares about you bearing fruit so much so that he's willing to cut you. He's willing to cut you. So you could think in your Christian life that you're making progress because you're getting bigger and people are like, wow, look at how impressive this thing that they're doing is. Look at the leaves on that guy. And he's like, nope, not the size I'm looking for. Cut. Nope, that's not, you think it's fruit. It's not fruit. Cut. I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, you know, all of our celebrity pastors within the United States, they are so big and beautiful and amazing and they had just recently had a conversation with somebody who's a missionary in Africa, and they were talking about local African pastors that were losing their lives for what they believed. And they, and, and they just said this to me. They said, I really think the kingdom's upside down. I really think it's upside down, and I think it is too. Now, notice how he makes a cut. Does he make a cut through giving you sickness? Does he make a cut through causing bad things to happen to you? No. Look down at your Bible, or uh, look up here at the screen. Sorry. <laughs> I don't have it in front of me. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, oh, no, no, can we go back to the um, previous slide? Sorry about that. He says, I'm the, I'm the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now, here's the key verse. You are already cut because of the what? Okay, come on, guys. You are already cut because of the word. Because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, the question that you should be asking yourself is, okay, so the disciples are already clean. They're cut because of the word that he's spoken to them. Which word was that? When was that word? Well, just a few chapters earlier, there was quite a word that Jesus spoke. And it pruned off some so-called disciples. Okay, next slide. This is in John 6. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. That's a pretty tough word. <laughs> Here's the word. Let me just translate it for us. Give up your social mores, your conceptions of good, upstanding religion, and be so devoted to me that you would actually eat me. And you know what happens? In the Greek, here's what it says. It says, most of his disciples left him. Most, over 50%, <laughs> that word pruned. And yet there's these ones, there's this tw these 12. And you know what they say after that? They say, he, he says, do you want to desert me as well? He's totally fine with it. 
Jesus is totally fine with people walking away from him. And he says, do you want to desert me as well? And they say, where else do we have to go? You alone have words of eternal life. The word is offensive, and the words cut me, but I've never heard words like these before. And they stay. See, you have, maybe this is, I don't know, it's it's been terrifying me all week. You have a say in whether you get cut or not. You don't have to listen. In fact, let me just say this. You don't have to listen to God. You don't have to listen to his offensive words, and you can still come to church, and nobody will think anything else of you. They won't know. Only you will know. In fact, only you know right now what he wants to cut, and you know it. You can listen to him and you could ignore him. But this is a strong word. You cannot call yourself a disciple if you were never cut by offensive words from God. And you won't change. And you won't bear fruit. And you shouldn't be surprised. Because you never got cut. Guys, a sign that you are being fathered A sign that you are his child is that you are cut by offensive words. I think this is one of the biggest lies in the Western kind of like megachurch evangelical world is that Father, Daddy, God would never offend us. He would never confront us. And we talk about the love of God. It's wonderful. We should talk about the love of God. But we never talk about the fear of the Lord and about our need to have things cut out of us. Guys, this is how he shows us that he is our father. Here's what Hebrews chapter 12 says. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Let's all just read that. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. This is the lie that we need out of our Western culture that God wouldn't tell me no He wouldn't tell me no, or that I can live my life for me, and I can still be with him forever. What a lie. I really think this is for Saints Hill, and I told our pre-gathering prayer people, I said, this is the most intense message I think I've ever given here, but I think that this this is, we do our best to go, Holy Spirit, what are you saying? What are you doing? And I really sense him on this this morning. I just need to say this to our church. God hates sin. He hates it. Like, does God hate anything? Yeah, he hates sin. He hates what it does to his kids. He is zealous about you. And he is sick and tired of seeing what sin has done in your life that we have tolerated. I just get this sense, like, guys, we, have, we tolerate little sins. Maybe they're not the big ones, but we tolerate the little sins. And we go, an 80% life for Christ is enough for me. No, it's not. He didn't pay for 80% of his blood. He gave 100% of his blood. And so he tells his kids, who are his disciples, what must go. Like, that's so intense. Well, let me tell you this. Here's the other, op- here's the other option. 
the unfathered life. And this, by the way, the unfathered life, that's God's wrath today. This is what Romans 1 tells us. Romans 1 tells us that God's wrath today is letting people do what they want. So God's wrath is not telling people what needs to go. He lets them figure it out on their own. So I feel like this is like a calling in our church, and it's in me, guys. This, I'm, giving you a, I'm giving to you this morning myself. This isn't like an idea. This is what he's been doing in me over the past three weeks. He's been like, you are tolerating sin in your life. It has to be cut now because I'm a dad, and I care too much about my child. Stop it. So this is like a call to a real discipleship. What is real discipleship? Where does change begin? I got a father partner. It's one that this doesn't, it doesn't, him being a gardener doesn't affect him being a partner. It actually increases his partnership. I'll be even more fruitful if I submit to his gardening. So let me just say this. this gosh, I was, didn't want to give this message today. I'll just say that. If you have been cruising through your life, living off some good feelings from the last worship set you were in, and you have no fruit to show, and you are never getting offended by God, by his words, that's not good. (laughs) You're a child, so you should be getting disciplined. There should be moments where you go, woe is me. Do you know, let me just, I'll let you in, because you're like, you're being so hard on us. No, it's like on me. I was standing right here in worship. And do you know what I'm praying? Constantly through worship, I'm praying, Holy Spirit, come. Just would you move amongst us? I want to see signs of your activity. People, you know, um, crying and, and people raising their hands and engaging you physically. As a pastor, you, you, you don't start a church to not have the Holy Spirit show up. Okay, so, so I'm there and I'm like, this is a good desire. Would you do this? And do you know what he says? He says, you know, I think worship would go a lot better if you just got your eyes on me. Okay, cut, cut me right there. I'm so grateful, Lord. I'm so grateful. Matthew 7. You ready for some more tough words of Jesus? We're just getting pruned all around. Okay, uh, here's what he says. He says, not everyone, oh, what a terrifying verse. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Why is it twice? Why is it Lord twice? That's, that's how they emphasized in their day. So not everyone, not, not everyone who says, Lord, Jesus, Not everyone who does that in a worship gathering will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and these are the charismatics, guys. (laughs) Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never intimately knew you. We were never partners. I never got to garden you. So depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Yeah, that is, that's not me. That's Jesus. If you've got a problem with that, take it up with him. Do you know what a worker of lawlessness is? It's kind of an interesting phrase, a worker of lawlessness. The worker of lawlessness is the person for whom God's word is optional. It's the person who thinks they can do what they want all of their life. And that they can still be with God forever. God comes to them and he's like, I need to cut you right there. And they don't listen. And then they wonder why five years later they feel so distant. And they're lacking real fruit. Let me ask you this. Well, who is Lord in your life? 
Who is God? Your belonging to Jesus, your, your, your father, your, the fathering of your life has to look like something. I'm not telling you what it has to look like. I'm just saying it's going to look like something. And if it doesn't, if you're sitting here this morning and, and you're like, oh, man, I've been dry. Man, I've been, you know, worn out. Well, maybe you need to hear that he wants you to be a partner, and that's where you need to repent. You need to come back to that. But maybe you're here this morning, and you're like, I, I just feel so distant. And he's like, yeah, you haven't let me cut you for the last 10 times that I've come and tried to prune you. You haven't really repented. You've said, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. And he's like, I was never looking for an apology. I was looking for an exchange. Give me what you think so I can give you what I think. That's repentance. Give me your life. Delete the app. Break up with the person. Give the money. Your fathering has to look like something. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, in worship. God speaks to me a bunch when we're singing. It's wonderful. And I found myself just like going through my life and going, oh my word, I had like this epiphany. I have believed so many lies. I have believed that, that the good life is pr the pursuit of enjoyment and the pursuit of Jesus. I believe that that's where life is really going to be found, and it's not. And I got like sick to my stomach, guys. I just started saying this. I'm so sick of the lies. I'm so sick of the syncretism, of the American dream syncretized up with this kind of vague form of Christianity. Like, I'm sick of it. You said that I was going to do the same things that you did, and I'm not seeing that happen. And he's like, because you're living a whole other life over here that I have no say in. And then you have this little bit of life that I have say in. And I want all of you. I want all of you. So that's where I've been in this message. Like, Jesus says it's all or nothing, guys. Here's what he says in Luke 9. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Do you know how many times I've done that? This one's a good one. John the disciple, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Wow. This one's oh, so for me. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And yet we all try. <laughs> the real gospel is that you are the bride, not the girlfriend of Christ. And this husband is zealous for you. And he will not let you live with 10 other girlfriends and him. It's only him. This is an offensive word. Can you feel it? But here he is today. Here he is today. And he is saying, let me treat you like a real son. Let me treat you like a real daughter. Because there's a promise for your discipline. Last passage. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, 
it produces, oh, this is wonderful, a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You let him come into your garden. You let him cut you with a word. You let him address the fears of your life. And there's going to be a harvest of righteousness and peace. What a wonderful promise. Do you want it? Can you think of people in Newburgh who need this? See, it is your pruning that makes partnership available so that righteousness and peace will abound around you, O child of God. That's the beginning of change. Let's all go ahead and stand up. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.